Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 40 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Western Ukraine as the war enters something of a new phase where the world is being confronted with new images and survivor testimony of the horrors Vladimir Putin and his army are inflicting on the people of this country. Ukrainian forces were able to liberate the town of Bucha over the weekend, just outside the capital of Kyiv to the west, just about 300 or so, 325 miles from where I'm standing, closer than San Francisco is to Los Angeles, closer than Corpus Christi is to Dallas. Bucha was once known as a bedroom community outside Kyiv, but it may now be known for something else, something terrible. CNN is here in Ukraine to bear witness to the world of what Russian soldiers did and are doing to these innocent Ukrainian civilians. And we want to caution viewers, these images in, that we're going to bring you, they're, they're graphic, they're disturbing, but we, we need to bring you these facts. Because the Kremlin and its propaganda outlets and allies are already claiming images such as this one are, quote, fake. They are not fake. Bodies littering the streets of Bucha. Some of them tossed out with the trash. Some of them with their hands tied behind their backs. This is the scene in the city today, as Russia falsely claims that its soldiers do not target civilians. CNN's Frederick Pleitkin, with his own eyes, saw these bodies filling a mass grave in Bucha on the grounds of a church. The city's mayor estimates as many as 300 people were buried here. The bodies piled on top of one another, mostly in black bags. Some limbs stick out from the soil. <laughs> Fred also met Vladimir today. Vladimir is a Ukrainian who has been searching for his younger brother in Bucha. Vladimir is now convinced his brother is one of the bodies inside the mass grave, although to be completely candid, he may never know. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Bucha today, calling these horrible acts, quote, war crimes, and predicting they will be recognized by the world ultimately as genocide. We want you to show the world what happened here, what the Russian military did, what the Russian Federation did in peaceful Ukraine. It was important for you to see that these were civilians. For those Ukrainians in these towns who survived these horrors, more dangers potentially await. President Zelensky warned today that Russian forces had booby-trapped corpses and planted mines in houses before withdrawing from the city. If the generals and bureaucrats in the Kremlin thought inflicting this terror would cause the Ukrainian people to shrink and to surrender, that does not appear to be the case. As we drove into Lviv today, this is what we saw. On the right, a sign welcoming us to Lviv. On the left, 
a massive sign that reads, Russian occupier, go F yourself. CNN's Phil Black joins me now. And Phil, I think it's important to emphasize these are not the bodies of Ukrainian soldiers filling the mass graves or, or lining the streets of Bucha. These are innocent civilians targeted by the Russian military. There can be no doubt, Jake. And even more than that, we're not just talking about the indifference to civilian life we've seen throughout this war, through Russia's continuous bombardment of people's homes and other clearly non-military targets. Everything that we are seeing, the disturbing images we're about to show you from Bucha, it all shows that civilians have been deliberately targeted and killed, sometimes execution style, sometimes tortured as well. Take a look. There's little point closing the back doors of this van. It's stopping frequently, picking up those who didn't survive Russia's brief occupation of Bucha. Each person is photographed. Where possible, ID is checked. And where necessary, bindings are removed. Their clothes, their belongings, and in some cases, their restraints, all indicate these people were a threat to no one in the moments before they were killed. In normal times, Vladislav Binchenka is a painter. Now he collects bodies. This one was carrying potatoes, he says. You can see they're all civilians, and snipers shot them all in the head. This is how they were having fun. <laughs> Tetyana Volodmirovna weeps beside her husband's shallow grave. She says he was taken from their home and weeks later found in a basement, tortured, mutilated, shot in the head. Ukraine's defence ministry released this video of another basement in Bucha. A CNN team visited the site and saw five dead men. Their hands were tied. Most were shot in the head and legs. President Zelensky came to Bucha and walked its streets, saying... It's very difficult to negotiate with Russia when you see what they have done here. Ukraine says it will investigate Russia's war crimes. The European Union says it will help. No need, says Russia, because all of this has been staged. A resident says this equally sincere message was scribbled with lipstick in a butcher home by a Russian soldier. Thanks for the warm welcome, it says. Sorry about the mess. Russia's mess. The extraordinary suffering, death and trauma inflicted during just a few weeks of occupation is only starting to be understood. For those who live through it, it's unlikely to ever be forgiven. Now, Jake, uh, Russia isn't just denying this, calling it fake and staged. The Russian prosecutor is even threatening to investigate anyone who dares suggest that Russian forces were responsible uh, for all of that. The Western view is very clearly no one else could have been responsible for this atrocity because no one else was there. But the concern by Ukraine and other governments as well is that what we're seeing in Bucha is just a tiny window into what may have been happening across other areas that have been occupied by Russia since the very beginning of this invasion. Like the South. We still don't know so much about the South. Phil Black, thank you so much for that very important reporting. Let's go to the East now, to CNN chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, who's live in Kharkiv for us. It's about 40 miles from the Russian border. And Christiane, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry warned today that Russian forces are preparing to try and seize Kharkiv. 
Indeed, and that's why we're in a total blackout situation outside. 8 p.m. curfew, as per usual. They don't want any lights going out. It's like a ghost town, this city, not just at night, but during the day as well, because they are really afraid. They thwarted the first attempt by Russian forces to take this town. This was at the end of February. And now they hear that the forces of Russia may be regrouping to try to do it again. And as you know, we're not far from eastern uh, Ukraine, which is the Donbass area, which Russia has announced is going to be its next focus. So there's a lot of fear and trepidation here in Kharkiv. And we've spent the day, the last 24 hours, giving you a sense of life in this second largest city. Here in Kharkiv, former Ukrainian capital, second biggest city, and one of the most important cultural sites, the great 19th century poet Taras Shevchenko is hunkering down for the rest of this war. Workers cover him in sandbags against the kind of destruction that's pounded this city center since the start. The most spectacular strike was this one. A month ago, a Russian missile slams low and hard straight into the corner of the regional administration building. The missile struck right here. And the idea of hitting a building like this is to deny the legitimacy of the state. But the terror against civilians continues. Playground by playground, mall by mall, park bench by park bench which is what we find in this residential neighborhood. People were sitting outside chatting on a Sunday afternoon. Kids were playing. We find the telltale pattern of a mortar that landed right here. Authorities say seven people were killed in this neighborhood. Many more were injured. Kharkiv sits 40 miles from the Russian border. It is the last major city before Donbass, where Russia is directing its war effort to the east. Just last week, the nearby village of Mala Rohan was liberated from the Russians. This civilian says he was captured and held. When dusk falls, children are outside playing and getting the last bit of fresh air before descending underground into one of the capital's many subway stations. After 40 days of war, they have turned their temporary homes into a neighborhood. Some have even decorated with fresh flowers. Zina says she's been living down here since the beginning. Oh, this is my house. Yeah. This used to be my house. Now we cannot live here, obviously, because it has been bombed uh, three times in a row. But this is a safe space for you? Yes, absolutely. And for the kids? Yes, absolutely. Kids do what kids do, homework and handicrafts. Even this is organized. Marina works for an organization that plans ways to keep the children busy, entertained, and their minds off the trauma. Here we equipped the playing grounds, the space for kids, where they can play with toys, with contractors, made puzzles, and do the things they did in their usual life before the war. But the trauma is never far away, as we found in this underground station, where civil defense are teaching kids how to protect themselves, how to recognize weapons and ordnance, and to remember never to touch. The adults are shown how to protect themselves in case of a chemical weapons attack. 
Even this maternity hospital was damaged in a mortar strike. Now the basement has been turned into a shelter and delivery room, if necessary. Birth. Life continues. We met Alina 30 minutes after she had delivered baby Yaroslava. How are you feeling? Mm, well, she, she is well too. My first daughter. Your first daughter? Yeah. Your first child? Yeah. As we're leaving, she tells us, I love my country, I love my daughter, my family, my husband. And in the delirium of new motherhood, she says, everything will be great for us. Of course, everything is not great right now, but the spirit really is tremendous. All day we have heard, and of course this persists, artillery duels between the Ukrainian forces and the Russians. And it is just really, they're hanging on and they're quite worried by what the Ministry of Defense has said, even though they did thwart the last attempt for Ru of Russians to take this town. Jake? All right, Christiana Mampour live in Kharkiv for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss is Dimitro Filotsikovic. He's an advisor to the mayor of Kiev. And Dimitro, you, you toured Bucha yesterday, ravaged Bucha. Tell us what you saw. Tell us your reaction to seeing these brutalities up close. Uh, it was amazing. I have never seen such many civilians killed civilians uh, like in Bucha yesterday. Uh, it's not normal and everybody and the whole world can see that uh, in Ukraine every day Russian army uh, kills uh, hundreds, hundreds of civilian people because they could not take our cities, they could not take our hearts, uh, our freedom. So they beginning uh, the genocide of our people. And our people, not I mean nation, only Ukrainians, no. In our country we have hundreds of nations. Everybody uh, now fighting for the freedom of Ukraine. Uh, everybody from, uh, if you are uh, Orthodox, Catholic, Islamic, uh, Jewish, we have everybody of such people and they are fighting for independence of Ukraine. Uh, Russian president cannot imagine an independent Ukraine. Because he thinks that the biggest problem in the 20th century was uh, the destroying and collapse of USSR. Uh, he wants to restore uh, Soviet Union to zero. Yes, today we have a hard situation uh, in our country. And uh, you need to understand, you need to be, your country, the West world, need to be more active, every day more active, because the uh, one day of do nothing is the hundred of uh, civilian kills in our country and near yeah. the capital of Ukraine, Dimitro, 10 kilometers from center. Dimitro, do you think that as Russian forces retreat and regroup more and other uh, Ukrainian cities are liberated, that you're going to find more evidence of mass graves, of atrocities such as what we witnessed in Bucha? Um, First of all, uh, we, I could not understand what want to do the Russian army 100%, but uh, I understand that uh, they don't take what they want. They want Kiev in three days. Uh, they could not see Kiev in three days. So today they are going from Kiev, but will go to east of Ukraine. And uh, it will be the hard time for other biggest cities of, of Ukraine, Kharkiv, uh, Odessa, Nikolaev, uh, you know what the hard situation is in uh, Mariupol, also know, everybody know, the whole world know. So, uh, uh, of course, if the war will continue, 
we will see thousands, thousands of kills of civilians because Russian army could not take by themselves, uh, poli uh, by politically take our cities because our people want to be Ukrainians and want to be free. I know what I am telling you because yeah. native, I'm from, from Crimea. It's the second time when I have such situation in my life. Until uh, 2014, I was living in Sevastopol and I see such things. Now we see it in the whole of Ukraine. And so everybody needs to understand that Ukrainian staying is not only about their country and their freedom. Ukraine staying uh, the shield, the shield of the new Nazi uh, Russian Federation and the new Hitler Putin. Uh, help us to stop them because it's not our war, only our war. It's the war of all West yeah. World too. Dmitro uh, Bilotikovic, uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Please stay safe. Coming up next, we're going to go live to southern Ukraine where a CNN team could literally feel the power of an artillery strike. Plus, in the U.S., a Colorado steel mill that's owner has Kremlin connections. A CNN investigation is uncovering the company's Russian tie. Stay with us. Welcome back to Lviv in western Ukraine. This depravity that we're seeing on display east of here in the suburbs of Kiev is not the full story of Vladimir Putin's ruthless invasion of his country. We now turn our attention to southern Ukraine, where the Russian military's assault is ongoing and no one is safe. Not women, not children, not seniors, not the disabled, not western journalists. Here's CNN's Ben Wiedemann. This is an area where there's been a fair amount of outgoing as well as incoming artillery. Down the road is a town that has been fought over for several days by Russian and Ukrainian forces. In these vast open spaces, the Russians seem far away. They're not. Down here, John, down here. Keep on rolling. You see it over there? We hug the earth. Two more artillery rounds. Oh, shit. Cameraman John Torigoi keeps rolling. Alrighty, so we've had two incoming rounds responding to artillery that's been firing in the Russian directions. Those shells came pretty close to us. No one has been injured. The officer tells translator Valeria Dubrovska, we need to go now. He said, go away. Like, hit and run. Okay, okay. I don't think it's safe. I hope the car's okay. Okay. Ready to move? Ready to move? Yeah, let's go. Da, da. And so we run with full body armor to the cars.
We're losing, we're losing petrol. I can't. No time to lose. Throw it in the back. Driver Igor Tiagno, razor focused on getting us to safety. His car also hit. Go, 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 go. Come on. All right, we're now we're trying to get out of this area as quickly as possible. Our other car completely destroyed. Crammed into this small car, we approach safer ground. We're going to go all the way into the hardcover of that village and then we'll take a breather. Producer Karim Khadr checks the damage to the car. The soldiers we left behind are still out there. We could leave. They can't. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, outside Mykolaiv, Ukraine. Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much for that. President Biden calls Vladimir Putin a war criminal and says more sanctions are on the way. But what we're learning about the next move, that's next. In our world lead, President Biden was not mincing words this morning after seeing the atrocities in Bucha, Ukraine. Take a listen. He is a war criminal, but we have to gather the information. We have to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons they need to continue the fight. And we have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. CNN chief White House correspondent Caitlin Collins joins us now live. And Caitlin, President Biden also said that more sanctions will be coming. Uh, What are you hearing about the timing? Well, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor here at the White House, told me those sanctions will be coming this week, Jake. He did not go into the scope of what exactly they're going to look like. But we do know they are the direct result of these horrific new images that are coming out of Bucha. And that is what led to President Biden this morning doubling down on his his comments that he does believe President Putin is a war criminal. But, Jake, one thing he wasn't prepared to say yet is something that President Zelensky has said, the Polish prime minister has said, which is that Russia is committing genocide in Ukraine. And here's why Jake Sullivan said that. The administration initially did not call this war crimes, and eventually they did after they, what they saw on the ground. Do you think that's going to be the case with calling it a genocide? Well, so first, it's not uh, just that we sit around and debate terms and then ultimately decide to apply a term based against static circumstances. We watch as things unfold. We gather evidence. Could we see ourselves reaching a different conclusion on that question? Of course we could, but it's going to be based on evidence and facts as we gather it along the way. And Jake, during that briefing, Jake Sullivan also warned that Russia may be moving its forces around, which he intentionally said they were retreating by repositioning some of these forces. But he said he warned this is still going to be a protracted battle, they believe, as Russia is trying to create this narrative of progress that they are making. And all of this comes as the president's comments about a war crimes trial. Jake Sullivan said that is something that when it comes to the specifics, they will have to consult with allies and partners on what exactly that would look like, of course, because that's a big question of how realistic the idea of a war crimes trial for Putin actually happening could be, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. The U.S. is giving Ukraine more than $2 billion in security assistance. But two veterans in Congress say that's not enough. One's a Democrat, the other's a Republican, and they're going to join us next together exclusively with a big ask 
they just made of President Biden. Stay with us. In our world lead, earlier today, an officer in the U.S. military told me that he thinks it's time for the Biden administration to move at the speed of war, not the speed of bureaucracy, when it comes to providing aid to Ukraine. This officer says it's time to flood the country with military assistance, specifically when it comes to providing air defense and simpler, simpler protection, such as body armor. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Jason Crow from Colorado and Republican Congressman Peter Meyer from Michigan. They both served in the U.S. Army in Iraq. They both worked in Afghanistan as well in different capacities. Uh, Congressman Crow, let me start with you. You and your Republican colleague just issued a few minutes ago a bipartisan letter pressing President Biden to provide even more aid to Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said this afternoon that more U.S. aid is being delivered every day. But why hasn't the more than $2.3 billion in security assistance since the start of the Biden administration, why hasn't that been enough in your view? Well, hi, Jake. Uh, first of all, I think the Biden administration has done a very nice job uh, of rallying an international coalition, imposing crippling sanctions. I think they could do more in, in the sanctions respect, uh, declassifying intelligence, warning the world, warning Ukrainians that this was coming uh, for months uh, before the invasion actually occurred, uh, and providing uh, billions, allocating billions and getting a lot of weapons into the hands of the Ukrainians. The fact that they have been able to fight and survive for the last month uh, and actually win in many cases uh, is because they have the weapons and the equipment that we provided. But war evolves uh, and without more and without more quicker, uh, they're going to continue to be up against the wall. So uh, what we saw in Bucha, uh, they're fighting brutal war criminals here. The Russians are going to continue to throw tanks and soldiers at the problem. So we are coming together to show the world and tell the administration that Congress stands united uh, for more and for faster aid. And, and Congressman Meyer, let's talk about the faster part of this, because that's one of the big problems we continue to hear about is how how long it is taking uh, the military assistance to get to the Ukrainians trying to defend their country. What is the holdup? What do you want to be done about that? Yeah, thank you, Jake. I think if you look at various tranches, you know, we saw the issues with the MiG-29s. We're strongly encouraging this administration to fast track that, to act, act with a sense of hesitancy, but to really, as you, the officer you were talking to earlier put it, to move at the pace of war. Uh, there are other things that require a longer lead time. If you get Stinger and Javelin production up to where it needs to be, you know, that is going to require some logistical feats of strength on the back end. Uh, and then, frankly, continue to be creative, scouring the world for other, especially Soviet weaponry uh, that the Ukrainian troops are already trained on. Right. So there's no one single solution. But what we are saying in this letter is that Congress is standing united. We have dozens of bipartisan members from the committees of jurisdiction, foreign affairs, armed services, intelligence, who are all saying we back moving at the speed of war to get the Ukrainians what they need. Congressman Crow, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling uh, says when giving arms to other nations, it's important to remember, quote, one, can the army, the Ukrainian army, uh, operate the system now? Two, can the army support the system? And is there the ability to repair and sustain it? Three, will the new weapon system contribute to either short-term or long-term success on the battlefield? And finally, four, can the receiving nation, in this case Ukraine, afford the system, a world has come as part of defense aid program. So you are an Army Ranger. Are all these considerations part of your request? 
Yeah, they are. And, and you know, we developed this letter with a couple of things in mind. Number one, what the Ukrainians say they need. Uh, another principle, really important principle of war and combat is that you normally defer to the person closest to the problem. You defer to the, the field commander who is closest in the fight because they know what their needs are. In, in this case, the Ukrainians are fighting. They're actually winning uh, despite overwhelming odds. They've shown that they know how to fight. They know how to win, and we should defer to that in many instances, but we're not doing so blindly either. General Hurtling is right. The Department of Defense is right. We have to make sure that we're providing smart aid, and what this letter does is it says there's, there is a time element to this. There are immediate needs uh, that, uh, they can, they, that they can field today. We can get them weapons and equipment, javelins, stingers, other things that we can just push to the front lines. They can immediately use it. But this is going to be a long-term battle. It's increasingly look, looking like this is going to be a long-term fight for the Ukrainians against the Russians. So at some point, we have to start making a transition to modernizing the Ukrainian military, providing them new systems, training them on those new systems, and fielding those systems. And, and Jake, if I could jump in, one thing that I think is important for the viewers to understand, uh, one thing the pushback that we've seen from the administration is they say, well, there are X number of this vehicle or X number of the systems already out there, but the Ukrainians aren't planning to expend every last drop. They need to be thinking long-term as well. So it's important that our aid and our defense assistance is looking out over the horizon. We're only in the sixth week of this conflict. Uh, I pray that it ends tomorrow, but if it doesn't, we need to be prepared for that. All right. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow, Republican Congressman Peter Meyer, thank you so much to both of you. Really appreciate it. And of course, as always, thank you for your service. Coming up next, Kremlin connections to the owner of a Colorado steel mill and the plant workers who fear they could have ties to Putin's brutal war on Ukraine. Stay with us. In our money lead, new calls for tougher sanctions against Russia after the atrocities allegedly committed by Putin's forces in Bucha, Ukraine. The European Union says it's urgently working on another round of sanctions, and President Biden says he's looking at additional economic pressure on Russia. The impact of these sanctions is growing. Even in the U.S., CNN's Drew Griffin reports on a steel plant in Colorado. It's owned by a company connected to a powerful Russian oligarch accused of potentially supplying Putin's military. It's an impressive sight. American steel being forged by 1,200 proud U.S. workers in a steel mill that's operated in Pueblo, Colorado for nearly 150 years. Evraz steel could not be a better symbol of American industrial resurgence, except for one now gut-wrenching problem. It's Russian. We have that stigma of being a Russian-owned company. Two-thirds of all shares of this mill's parent company are owned by Kremlin-connected Russians. And its biggest shareholder is the oligarch, Roman Abramovich, who is closely aligned with Vladimir Putin and has been sanctioned by the UK, EU, and Canada. The British claim Abramovich is or has been involved in destabilizing Ukraine via Evraz PLC including potentially supplying steel to the Russian military, which may have been used in the production of tanks. The company denies it. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, U.S. steel workers here in Pueblo woke up to a distasteful possibility that somehow they are supporting Vladimir Putin in this. Hearing all this stuff, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, it's very... <clears throat> Uh, I have my own kids, so it makes it tough to sit there and see 
all this stuff going on. Steelworkers Daniel Duran, Rick Lacero, and Chuck Perko are afraid of what might happen if Abramovich is sanctioned by the U.S. It's just the uncertainty is, uh, it's scary. It's real scary. Uncertainty for your jobs. For the jobs, yeah. I disdain what's going on over there, but my company is not Abramovich's company in, in my eyes. You gotta go through this door here. David Ferryman is senior vice president of Evraz North America. Do you consider this a Russian-owned company? I don't. I, uh, we're headquartered independent operation in Chicago. We have our own CEO. We have our own board of directors. We're based in London. Yes, the parent company has a large footprint in Russia. That footprint includes a massive Russian business. Evraz's 2021 report shows revenue of $14 billion and that 16% of the parent company's revenue is derived from the North American plants. Abramovich himself made $522 million from Evraz dividends last year. Ferryman insists the revenues generated in Evraz steel mills across North America are reinvested in the company in North America. So your position is that these are completely separate entities? I'm not saying they're completely separate. Those earnings stay here in North America, and they're invested into these facilities. Technically, that may make sense to you. But when we watch what's happening, there's a lot of people wondering how a Russian oligarch can invest in a U.S. steel mill and be making some money here while also playing footsie with Vladimir Putin. I can't speak for that. What I can tell you is we're about as American a company as it gets here in Pueblo. We've been here longer than Colorado's been a state. But we're really critical to our nation's infrastructure. The thing to remember is this is all connected. Oligarch expert and author Casey Michelle says there is no doubt Obramovich's money helps Putin. The EU said Abramovich is providing a substantial source of revenue to the government of the Russian Federation. There is no such thing as an independent or apolitical oligarch. These parasitic figures that extracted wealth in Russia and are now extracting wealth in the United States of America, all on behalf of a dictatorship in the Kremlin. Exactly, says Ukrainians for Colorado president Marina Dubrova. It doesn't matter how many, what's the stakes uh, he owns in that company. Any stakes, half percent, even one-tenth of a percent, that portion has to be sold. Union President Chuck Perko agrees Obramovich should sell. To him, it's personal. I am the grandson of war refugees. The Russians came into my grandparents' farm in 1945 and told them, you have one hour to leave. It hurts a little bit, but um, there, there's enough of a disconnect for me that I can go to work and know that we're not funding that war effort uh, we're, we're completely separate. Despite UK, EU, and Canadian sanctions against him so far, the United States has not touched Roman Abramovich. The United States is still ignoring the fact that civilians are being killed. Look at Mariupol. I mean, how much more evidence United States has to have to make a decision? As for why the Biden administration has not sanctioned Abramovich yet, Jake, Phil Mattingly at the White House is reporting that the Treasury officials are looking into it, but are also trying to figure out how to do that without punishing these Everest U.S. plants and obviously the jobs and the economy that goes with it.
Jake? Drew Griffin, thank you so much. Coming up, how the Russian invasion is taking a visible toll on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm uh, Jake Tapper, and you are watching The Lead, and we are live from the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. This hour, President Biden today drawing a distinction between genocide and war crimes after revelations of atrocities committed against the Ukrainian people. Coming up, we'll discuss whether Putin and Russian forces are guilty of one or both. Plus, the American man we met here in Lviv today, he was adopted as a child from Ukraine to the United States, and he explains why he felt compelled to return to his war-torn native land. And leading this hour, international outrage about the atrocities against the innocent men, women, and children here in Ukraine, including a mass grave in Bucha and slaughter in the streets. Western leaders calling for investigations as President Biden confirms new sanctions are on the way. But is this all just so much fiddling while Rome burns? About 300 miles east of here is CNN's Fred Pleitkin, He's live for us from Kiev. And Fred, you witnessed the sight of a mass grave in Bucha on church grounds. Tell us what you saw. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Jake. And generally, the situation there in Bucha is just absolutely devastating. It's a scene of utter destruction. That place was held by Russian forces for, I'd say, round about a month. Uh, there was some heavy fighting and apparently also a lot of civilians, or, or not apparently, definitely also a lot of civilians who were killed. Uh, right now, the people there in Bucha, after the Russian forces have withdrawn from that area, they're trying to come to terms with that. They're still discovering dead bodies in almost uh, all the buildings and all the places uh, that we've seen uh, around that area. We today went to Bucha. We went around that area. And uh, I want to show you what we saw there. And we have to warn our viewers, though, what you're about to see is extremely graphic and very disturbing. Ukrainian authorities in Bucha lead us into a basement they call a Russian execution chamber. It's a gruesome scene. Five bodies, their hands tied behind their backs, shot. The bullet casings collected by Ukrainian police, pockmarks from bullets in the walls. The Ukrainians say these men were killed when Russian forces used this compound as a military base while occupying Bucha. An advisor to Ukraine's interior minister not even trying to conceal his anger. After the liberation of Bucha, five corpses of civilians were found here, he says, with their hands tied behind their backs. They were shot in the head and in the chest. They were tortured before. Even the body collectors find it hard to keep their composure. Vladislav Minchenko is usually a painter. Now he collects the dead left behind after Russian forces retreated from Bucha. This is not what we learned in school, he says. Do you see my hands? Hundreds, hundreds of dead. Hundreds, not dozens. The Kremlin has denied Russia was behind any atrocities in Bucha. Now, the Russians say the notion of their troops having killed civilians is all fake news and propaganda, but it does seem clear that they were here. That looks like a sort of foxhole position, and over there they seem to have dug in a tank. On the outer wall, the letter V, a symbol that Russian forces painted on their vehicles before invading this part of Ukraine. Now, a lot of Russian military hardware lies destroyed in the streets of Bucha and other towns around Kiev, as the Ukrainians made a stand and prevented Vladimir Putin's army from entering the capital city. 
Images published shortly after Russian forces left Bucha show many corpses lying in the streets. Some bodies had their hands tied behind their backs. President Biden calls what happened here a war crime. While visiting Bucha, Ukraine's president vowed to bring those behind the violence against civilians to justice. These are war crimes, he says, and they will be recognized by the world as genocide. You are here and you can see what happened. We know that thousands of people were killed and tortured, teared limbs, raped women and killed children. And still, the dead keep piling up. Many lay in this mass grave behind the main church in Bucha. Local authorities tell us around 150 people are buried here, but no one knows the exact number. And here, too, the scenes are tragic. (laughs) Vladimir has been searching for his younger brother, Dimitri. Now he's convinced Dimitri lies here, even though he can't be 100% sure. The neighbor accompanying him has strong words for the Russians. Why do you hate Ukraine so much, she says. Since the 1930s, you've been abusing Ukraine. You just wanted to destroy us. You wanted us gone. But we will be. Everything will be okay. I believe it. But more corpses are already on the way. At the end of the day, we meet Vladislav and the body collectors again. Another nine bodies found in this tour alone. And it's unlikely they'll be the last. So there you can see, Jake, it's absolutely devastating work that these uh, folks do. They are, by the way, all volunteers, the guys who are picking up uh, those uh, those corpses uh, in the streets, in buildings. And the way it works is that they get called to the scene by the authorities or by local people. They go there, uh, they, they, they collect the bodies, and then they bring them for processing. Because, of course, in many cases, people don't know the identities of uh, those who have died. And they still need to be checked and, and need to be seen uh, or their next of kin notified as well. Obviously, the mood there in Bucha is is one of deep sadness, deep anger as well. However, from the people that we spoke to, they also vow that the civilians are going to return and that city will be rebuilt and they say will be better than ever before, Jake. And and Fred, I know that Bucha was under Russia control until the weekend. um, And the fear is that there are lots of other places, lots of other towns in a similar Mm -hmm. situation where all these atrocities have taken place and we just don't know about it yet. Yeah, I think, and, and that's something that, that could very well be realistic. There are uh, Ukrainian officials who said that this could just be the tip of the iceberg because, of course, there were so many other towns that were under rock, Russian occupation as well. And, and this weekend, I actually managed to go to, to some of those places. We went to several villages. We went to another town called Borodyanka. That was also completely destroyed the, down the main street. There was utter devastation. And in that town, for instance, there was um, one family that told us that they had just returned and found that Russians had been in their house and then said they had discovered a dead body in their backyard also with his hands tied behind his back and a bullet hole in the head. We found the shell casing still on the floor there. That was just one example of one town. But if you go around this area, if you travel around this area, there are so many places that are completely destroyed. And also, by the way, a lot of destroyed Russian armor, Russian tanks. So I think there's two things that are becoming increasingly clear is that many more civilians have been killed and harmed in all of this than than anybody would have thought. But also the Russians were defeated a lot worse than they're letting on and a lot worse than they'll ever admit, judging by the amount of destroyed armor that they left behind, Jake. Fred Pleitkin, bearing witness in Kiev. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Wartime leadership 
is, of course, not without cost. And the evidence is apparent in these two photographs of President Zelensky. The picture on the left was taken just 49 days ago during a joint news conference with the German chancellor in then peaceful Ukraine. The threat of a Russian invasion was just that, just a threat. On the right, a photograph from today after Zelensky surveyed a mass grave where Ukrainian civilians had been left murdered in this unprovoked war. Let's discuss with the former prime minister of Ukraine, Arseniy Yatsenyuk. Uh, he served from 2014 to 2016. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, thanks for joining us. So Ukrainian officials say that more than 400 murdered Ukrainian civilians have been removed from the Kyiv region. Ukrainian President Zelensky says thousands more have been tortured. Women have been raped, children killed. Uh, what's your reaction to what we're hearing and seeing now? This is the biggest drama after the Second World War that unfolded in Europe. This is, this is not just a disaster. Everything that Putin and his cronies and his soldiers so-called did to Ukrainian people, this is war crimes and crimes against humanity. The, the biggest question, uh, Jake, I have today is how to bring to justice personally Putin and every single commander in the chain and every soldier who committed these atrocities against the Ukrainian people. So this, is, this has to be not a lip service that we will bring to justice Putin. I believe that this is the high time to establish as quick as possible a special legal panel similar that was established to go after Nazi crimes. So a kind of Nuremberg special legal panel which is to be established by G7 member states and Ukraine in order to go after. Oh, we lost uh, we lost his feed. We'll try to bring him back. And when we do, we'll, we'll bring that to you live. Um, the former prime minister of Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the heartbreaking way one woman learned she lost her home in this invasion. And sadly, her story is like so many others here in Ukraine right now. Plus, Despite swift action around the world to abandon resources from Russia, why the U.S. of all countries may be slow to respond. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Leave. I'm uh, live in western Ukraine in Lviv. Um, we, of course, had a technical issue just a second ago. Of course, satellites can be con- forgiven for going out in a, in a wartime uh, situation. Uh, let's continue our conversation with the former prime minister of Ukraine, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, before um, the break, uh, you were talking about how you think there needs to be a Nuremberg-type trial uh, where Putin and his military commanders are tried uh, for crimes against humanity and and, and war crimes. Um, I I mean, it's a a powerful idea, Mr. Prime Minister, but I guess the, the big difference is that the Germans lost that war, and that's why they were able to be tried and, and put on trial, whereas Vladimir Putin is off in the Kremlin or wherever he is right now. He hasn't lost anything. Yeah, I still believe that Putin will lose this war. He is to lose this war, because this is the war against the free world. This is the war against the actually every human being. This is the war against the freedom. So he is to lose this war, but we need to prepare, to prepare right now. And we, I believe that we need to urgently launch a kind of joint investigative group uh, in order to be prepared to bring to justice Putin and to see Putin sitting behind the bars. Um, Because this is, this is the 
righteous war. This is the war how to defend the human lives. Uh, and uh, uh, look, what happened in Ukraine could be similar as what happened in Srebrenica. And Christiane Amanpour, she, she was actually a journalist in, in, in uh, that time in Srebrenica. And, and she can tell you what was happening. So I believe that what, it, what, it, what we need to do right now is we need not just to send a strong signal. We need agency to establish a legal body which will go after Putin and his uh, criminals. Today, Ukrainian President Zelensky said, quote, it's very difficult to negotiate with the Russians when you see what they have done here, referring to the, the brutality uh, in Bucha. Is there any chance for diplomacy at this point when you see what the Russians apparently uh, did at Bucha? Jake, I am very skeptical about any kind of diplomacy. We had a very big chance uh, to settle all these uh, so-called diplomatic issues before the war. But Putin didn't have any kind of intention to go through the diplomatic way. You know, today uh, uh, on the state-sponsored Russian media, which is RIA Novosti, they published an article. And if you translate this article for your audience, you would be just astonished. So the article is how to exterminate you. Oh, he froze up. All right. Well, we have. Are you, wait, are you there? Arseny, are you there? All right. We've, we've lost him again. Our thanks to uh, Arseny Atsenik, a former prime minister of Ukraine. You, thank you for bearing with us also. Obviously, there are a lot of satellite issues sometimes in a war-torn situation. While much of the world's attention today is on what's happening around Kyiv, uh, such as the suburb of Bucha, the Russian forces are now refocusing their assault on southern Ukraine. The port city of Odessa on edge after new Russian airstrikes overnight. CNN's Ed Lavendera is live for us in Odessa. Ed, tell us what you're seeing there in southern Ukraine. Hello, Jake. Well, we've had uh, two rounds of airstrikes uh, on Sunday here uh, that uh, attacked a uh, oil refinery and a fuel storage facility. Uh, those two strikes, one in the early morning, one late at night. Uh, did extensive damage there. One person was injured. And we've also seen renewed airstrikes on the city of Mykolaiv, which is about a two-hour drive east of where I am. And that has killed uh, almost a dozen people, injured many more as well. Um, and it really kind of gets to the heart of what this region of Ukraine is starting to grasp and uh, deal with. And uh, the chaotic nature of the the uh, attacks in Mykolaiv, which seem to be, in the words of Ukrainian officials, designed to harass and cause panic among uh, the population there, is different from what the attacks here in the Odessa region have been like, which appear much more pinpointed and targeted to a specific uh, target. But the variety of that, and because of the uh, the random nature uh, for many civilians here, uh, it really raises you know, questions about what exactly it's going to look like in the coming weeks when Russian forces redeploy uh, their, their forces and begin focusing their attacks on the eastern part of the country. And by all accounts, uh, there is you know, serious questions if the full intention here is to reach as far south of Odessa uh, to get this land bridge along the, the, the uh, northern edge of the, of the Black Sea. Um, and that is what is raising a lot of alarm bells down here in this region. Ed, what do we know about Ukraine and, and how Ukraine's forces are responding? 
Well, you know, every indication we're getting now is that, uh, you know, and, and U.S. officials and Ukrainian officials are saying this, that uh, the uh, Russian forces are uh, moving quickly to redeploy into the eastern uh, parts of this country. And, and Ukrainian forces are going to have to do the same. And, and the risk here and the concern is that these Russian forces, as they move in east, will be able to encircle uh, the Ukrainian forces that are uh, in the eastern part of the country, making it much more difficult to defend, and in the meantime, uh, you know, attacks that are launched here in the more southern cities, like Odessa, uh, forces Ukrainian uh, forces to have to confront that and deal with that down here, keeping them from joining the fight in in the east there. So these are the different types of things that uh, Ukrainian forces are having to deal with right now and having to prepare for as this redeployment moves into the east and perhaps is either days or weeks away from uh, from picking up steam. Um, and we'll have to see how that continues to play out. Ed Lavendera in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Appreciate that reporting. About four and a quarter million people, four and a quarter million have fled Ukraine since Russia's invasion 40 days ago. That number comes from the United Nations. And the Polish border guard says nearly two and a half million of those refugees have crossed into Poland. One of those refugees is Nadia Hanatka. She joins us from Krakow, Poland now, where she fled with her two daughters. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. You and your family used to live in the Kiev suburb of Irpin. And when the war started, you tried to stay. Tell us about that. You've shared photographs of, of your family and others, including Pat's huddled together in a basement. Hello. Uh, first of all, I just thank you for inviting me on your channel. And I am a little worried. And actually, it's not about worry because of channel. It's actually our statement. Every people, every mother, every child. So uh, it was hard to reach Poland. And it was hard to reach not on, only physically, because I just uh, did it by my car, by my hand, with two my children and my cats. It was uh, very hard for soul. Uh, I leave my house, I leave my country, and my parents uh, still live in Ukraine on the west. The Ukraine, it's uh, Lutsk, my brother also there. It's uh, also a dangerous place because it's uh, really near to border of Belarus. And uh, sometimes it's bombing also. So for me, it's hard. My soul and my every piece of my body and my soul with my people. And it's it, it's it's very hard time for for all of us. Over the weekend, uh, you found out uh, that the roof of your home and the top floor of your home have been destroyed. A friend sent a, a video of what it looks like now. How did you react after yeah. you saw this? Yes, it's actually, I, I, I would like to notice that it was birthday of my younger daughter. It was uh, before yesterday. It was morning and I just tried to find the, all my feeling to celebrate of birthday of my daughter. And then my, uh, one friend of mine just sent me the picture uh, with my house. So it was really painful. But in a few minutes, I just uh, said, God, thank you. Because it's not only celebration of birthday my daughter, it's also celebration of my life and my two daughters' life. Because like uh, God reminded me, I just... Uh, 
you survived and you in safe place. It's it's still painful because for women, you know, it's not only like house. It's my soul, my home, my clothes. It's picture of my daughters. It's all my life. And for now, it's not possible to reach the house because it's still dangerous because it can be um, mined. Uh, and so, somebody lives uh, lived there before it was bombed. I, I can see that some strangers, maybe soldiers, I don't know, uh, somebody lives lived there. And it's not possible to live in my house anymore because it's uh, like no roof, no second floor, and it's dangerous. But for me, it doesn't matter. I, I, I still live here and all my focus to, to support my people, to, to send some humanitarian aid. Because if God saved me and it's gift, my life is gift for me and my children, I should yeah. support and help my people who are still in, in my country. Uh, so Nadia, I, as, you, as you noted, as you noted um, it was your daughter's uh, birthday over, over the weekend. Uh, she turned nine. How is she? H- how are the kids? How are they doing? You know, the kids are feeling like mother feeling. I just try to keep myself strong. No tears. Just we leave our tears for future. And my daughters like look at me and just if mom without tears and keep strong, they just uh, celebrate the life. I just like I try to be example for my kids. Yes, they are very upset, and I just explain to her it's special birthday. It's like a second birthday, and it's like a gift from God for you. <sighs> it's not fair that they have to go through this. Nadia Hanatyuk, thank you so much. Uh, God bless you and your thank family. You. Thank you. Thank you. Here, here in Ukraine, President Zelensky is calling Russia's actions flat-out genocide. President Biden would not quite go there. Instead, he accused Putin of being a war criminal. Is there a difference? What is that difference? We will discuss next. In our worldly, the horrific atrocities committed in the town of Bucha, just to the west of Kiev, are sparking global outrage. There are calls for the International Criminal Court to investigate. Ukrainian President Zelensky calls these Russian attacks genocide. Today, President Biden said Vladimir Putin should be put on trial for war crimes. Take a listen to what Biden had to say this morning. We have to gather all the detail so this can be an actual have a war crime trial. This guy is brutal. And what's happening in Bucha is outrageous. And everyone's seen it. Let's discuss this with the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, also with us, University College London law professor Philippe Sands. He's the author of East West Street on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity, a fascinating book uh, that talks about how the origins of the legal concepts of genocide and crimes against humanity actually have their roots in the town I'm sitting in right now, Lviv. Um, Philippe, to most people looking at these horrific images from Bucha, it's clearly a war crime. 
Uh, we just heard President Biden join President Zelensky in calling it that. But Biden stopped short of calling it genocide. You're an expert on the development of these legal concepts. Um, is this a genocide? What do you think it is? Sure. Well, just a little primer. Until 1939, there was only one international crime, and that was called war crimes. And that was included things like targeting civilians, which apparently is going on. The images are absolutely appalling. Then in 1945, at the Nuremberg Tribunal, three new crimes were invented. Crimes against humanity, systematic killing, and this may be a crime against humanity because it seems to be happening on so horrific a scale. Um, genocide, which is the destruction of groups, and the fourth international crime, the crime of aggression, which I believe uh, this also to be. And what we are seeing in your images that you're broadcasting and in our newspapers is the targeting of civilians, and that looks like war crimes on a scale that crosses the threshold. To prove whether it's a genocide in legal terms is tougher. You've got to prove an intention to destroy the group, the Ukrainian group, in whole or in part. And I think when President Zelensky refers to what is happening as a genocide, he is using it in a political sense rather than a legal sense. Ambassador Taylor, how much more pressure do these horrific images out of Bucha put on the U.S. to do more to help the people of Ukraine, or not just the people of the U.S., the people of, of, of NATO as well? What more can, should the U.S. do? Jake, the United States should, and, and the Europeans, should do everything they can, everything they can, heavy weapons, um, the kinds of weapons that the Ukrainians have been asking for, the President Zelensky has been asking for, we should provide all of that as soon as possible. They are under great stress. They need these weapons now. They also need the continued pressure on the Russians in terms of the sanctions. That needs to happen. And it sounds like this has jolted the Europeans. It's jolted the United States. I mean, we are now so focused. But even more important than that, Jake, is the effect on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are outraged. They are furious and they will fight harder than ever in, in order to win. They will win in the end. Philippe, President Biden is uh, calling for Putin to be put on trial. I don't believe Russia is a partner to the International Criminal Court, neither is the United States for that matter. What are some of the difficulties from a legal standpoint that such a prosecution might face? Well, again, just to be clear, the International Criminal Court, which is in The Hague, does have jurisdiction over crimes committed on the territory of Ukraine. It has jurisdiction over crimes against humanity and war crimes, and it is investigating those right now. It also has jurisdiction over genocide, if that is happening, although as far as what I can tell now, that's not so clear. One of the things that's crucial also, if a Russian national commits a war crime on the territory of Ukraine, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction. There's one crime missing, and I just listened to the ambassador, and this is what I'm calling for, and I'm supported now by over 100 former world leaders, prime ministers, presidents, and President Zelensky is calling for this. He is calling for the creation of a special tribunal, Nuremberg-style, to investigate and prosecute the crime of aggression, waging illegal war. And up to this point, the United States has not been joining that call. And my hope is that this will jolt the United States, the Biden administration and the Europeans to going forward. Why the crime of aggression? Because it's the only one in which you can, with certainty, go to the top table. You can reach 
President Putin, you can reach Mr. Lavrov, you can reach the defense minister, you can reach the financiers. The problem with proving war crimes, and perhaps also crimes against humanity, is it's a big call to lead a prosecution that goes all the way to the top. The images we've been seeing are dreadful, and someone is responsible for committing war crimes. The question is, who? And proving that that goes right up to Mr. Putin is tough. And I, I wonder whether it was perhaps wise for President Biden to describe him as a war criminal. It may be that he is, but we don't yet have the proof to show it. What he certainly is, is guilty of the crime of aggression, in my view, waging a manifestly illegal war, a, a crime that the Nuremberg judges back in '46 called the supreme crime. Ambassador Taylor, you're an expert on Vladimir Putin. How do you think he's likely to respond to President Biden calling for him to be literally placed on trial for war crimes? So, Jake, it's not clear that President Putin listened to anyone. Um, He'll probably hear the reports of uh, President Biden's comments. But let me go back to Dr. Sands. I think he's exactly right. Um, We can figure out, we can probably determine. Our intelligence uh, services probably know who the commander of that motorized rifle regiment in Bucha. Uh, They probably know the Russian commander of that, and they should track him down because he, like the commander of the artillery brigade down in Mariupol, they are clearly, they are clearly war criminals, and we can identify those, and we can go after those, those very specific people. And then the Russian commanders who are in a similar position will think very hard. Ambassador Bill Taylor, Philippe Sands, thanks to both of you. I appreciate it very much. Born in Ukraine, raised in the U.S., coming up next, the man we met here in Lviv today and why he says he feels a sense of duty to be in his native country right now. Stay with us. In our world lead, the people of Ukraine have shown extraordinary resilience in the face of Russia's brutal invasion, not only resisting this attack, but also helping those who have been displaced. I want to take a quick moment to share with you the story of a 27-year-old man who was born in the Ukraine and raised in the U.S. after an American family adopted him. He felt compelled to come back here to help. I just wanted to come and help. Compelled to come. This is where I'm from, you know, like Ukraine is in my blood. One American traveling thousands and thousands of miles to give back to the country he once called home. I'm adopted from here. 2001, my American family adopted me and my uh, three other siblings from a small town. I just want to provide back to where I came from, just help the country I came from, was born from. Originally from a small town near Donetsk, Eric grew up and still lives in New Mexico. And now the 27-year-old is among the roughly 300 volunteers working around the clock at one of the biggest humanitarian centers in Ukraine, where he helps with packing and unpacking humanitarian aid. Even though we're not on the front lines, this work that we're doing here uh, plays a key role. The Lviv Humanitarian Center helps up to 700 displaced people directly every day and sends donations directly to the most hard-hit areas of the country. Today's shipment is going to Hostomel and Bucha, where the city is reeling over the discovery of this mass grave site. I feel like uh, 
as a society, like we do forget to uh, realize that it still is going on. But it's not something Eric can forget about. Seeing a chance to serve a country where his roots run deep. I want Ukraine to be more of me. Um, and uh, I like to serve. So giving back to those uh, are less fortunate because, I mean, I was adopted and then I had everything. And now coming here, I see that there's people a lot less fortunate than me. And our thanks and best wishes to Eric. His parents in New Mexico must be pretty proud. Roughly half of the four million plus refugees who have fled Ukraine Roughly half of them are children. As we all know too well, children need to be in school. CNN's Kyung La visited a school in Warsaw, Poland, that has welcomed every new refugee. And everyone is coping the best they can. To learn the full scope of war, take a seat in Ms. Magda's classroom. She's a Polish teacher using Google Translate to communicate in Ukrainian with her new foreign students. Her class has grown by 40% this month with new children who've just fled the only home they've ever known. You're translating on the internet as you teach. Uh, yes, because I know only Polish language. How important is it for you as a teacher to help these kids? Primary School 157 with bilingual classes has welcomed every new refugee. Classes are more cramped, but these public school students don't complain because they feel they already know the strangers sitting next to them. Well, a lot of kids have come to our school and some of them have told us stories about what's happened. They've left people that they love behind. Edward Szyzewski is 13 years old, a Polish student, seeing the influx of war survivors come through his school doors. The more we take in, the better we're doing. The better? Yes. So you don't mind that the no. rooms are crowded? No. It's for a good cause. So these are all Polish kids. <laughs> Eva Rex Granat is the vice director. That's hard. She feels for every child in the building and only wishes she could do more. Especially when I see people helping. And I don't know. We can help in only small part. Warsaw's mayor tells us the strain on his city schools is enormous. The 100,000 additional refugee children in Poland's capital need an education. It's an increase of 30 percent just this last month. Nazar Samodenko is 13. He's from Kiev. Your mom is here. Yes. Um, your father? No, he stayed in Ukraine. Nazar's father is a minister helping fight in the war. It took a week for Nazar to escape Ukraine with his mother. School offers the structure of a life he's lost. Your favorite subject is? Math. Math. You like math. Yes. Is it easier being around other Ukrainian kids? The yes, he says. We can talk. They understand. <laughs> of the four million refugees fleeing Ukraine, half are children paying the price of adult sins. How hard is it for kids your age to live through this? 
I think it's practically impossible to go through this. It's just mind-boggling how this could happen to someone that young. The school told us they're not experts in dealing with war trauma, that there have not been child psychologists added to the school. Despite all of this, despite the strain on the teachers and the space, they are not turning a single student away. In fact, the community has even stepped up. There have been donations of backpacks being delivered to the school. And they're being added so rapidly, Jake, that something we did notice at the school is that the new student names aren't being added by computer they're actually being written in by hand in pencil. Jake. All right, Kyung-La, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The accelerated plans to cut economic ties with Russia and one of the biggest firms in the world and why the U.S. might lag behind. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, a file of shame. That's what the U.N. Secretary General called the latest climate report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And now, as CNN's Renee Marsh reports, Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine has fast-tracked several European countries' clean energy plans and left the U.S. trailing. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it triggered what climate change warnings did not. It expedited Europe's plans for transitioning to renewable energy. Since the invasion, Germany announced it's speeding up wind and solar energy projects. France ended its gas heater subsidies. Italy is moving to build six new wind farms. And the Netherlands is also ramping up offshore wind all in an effort to end reliance on Russian oil and gas. The war giving an urgent push to Europe's clean energy transition. When there is a national security imperative, it is far easier to get consensus, to spend money, to push forward more dramatic changes. The Russian invasion, high gas prices, advancements in the renewable energy sector, and a climate crisis have all converged to create a moment for the green energy movement like never before. Yet scientists and energy experts say the United States is in danger of missing this moment. Right now, Europe is leading and it's moving faster than others. But obviously, this is a global problem and we all need to be on the same page. The United States is one of the leading contributors to heat trapping emissions and its actions are critical to meet global climate goals. The EU has adopted a climate law setting 2050 as the target date for zero emissions. No such legislation has passed in the U.S. Biden's climate push in Build Back Better remains stymied by politics. We are playing catch up. There's no doubt about it. All of the investments that have, were in the bipartisan infrastructure law that are in hopefully the, the next uh, version of what Congress will pass, these tax credits for clean energy, renewable energy, that has to be part of our strategy. An urgent new U.N.-backed climate change report released Monday calls for an immediate transition to renewable energy to avoid climate catastrophe. I'm really worried that in the United States we're going to miss this moment because there's no real political consensus. And because there's no political consensus, we can't have a big piece of legislation, which is what you really need if you're going to supercharge the transition. On Capitol Hill last week, lawmakers raised concerns the U.S. also lags in producing the critical minerals that power things like batteries for electric vehicles, a space China dominates. 
what we've seen Russia do by weaponizing energy, I guarantee you China will do the same thing weaponizing critical minerals. Russia's aggression has set off the race for renewables in Europe. But the question remains, will the U.S. catch up? And President Biden has done or taken what actions he can without Congress. Last week, he invoked the Defense Production Act, which was intended to jumpstart the production of minerals needed to power those renewables right here in the United States. But that move alone, Jake, won't spur this sort of aggressive transition that today's report is so urgently calling for. Right now, what it comes down to is putting the political divides aside to pass that strong climate legislation or simply face the reality of climate disaster. Renee Marsh, thank you so much. Coming up next, the significant vote about to happen this hour on Capitol Hill. Stay with us. Brief moment for politics now. Any moment the U.S. Senate will vote to move Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination from the Senate Judiciary Committee on to the full Senate. It's a key step in the all but certain confirmation of President Biden's historic pick. Republicans on the Judiciary Committee praised Judge Jackson's qualifications, yet they remained stuck with the party line vote. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said this afternoon the Senate will vote to confirm Jackson by the end of the week. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight with more from Lviv and from our reporters on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer, who is in the Situation Room. I'll see you in a few hours. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.